An evil king named Jehoahaz was over the nation of Israel, a nation which had long been divided from its sister nation, Judah. And it reminds us that sin always divides and it keeps on dividing. Whereas the sheep, God's people, are under one head, and that's the Lord. And had, had Israel obeyed the Lord, they would have never been divided. But Solomon had a bad ending in his life, and his son Rehoboam ignored the godly counsel of his father, of his father's counselors. Boy, he had a lot of literature to read, didn't he? Rehoboam, all that Solomon wrote, and yet reading it wasn't enough, hearing it wasn't enough. And so God tore the nation in two, and now, in our text, in this divided nation of Israel, the evil doings of King Jehoahaz and the children of Israel have kindled the anger of the Lord, so much so that the Lord delivered them into the hands of Hazael, the king of Syria, a Gentile nation. And last week we entered chapter 13 and studied the first three verses, which I'm going to read now to give us a context for verse 4. We're in 2 Kings chapter 13 for those of you just joining us, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. In the three and twentieth year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and reigned seventeen years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He departed not from them. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, all their days. And now the new part of our study, verse 4. And Jehoahaz besought the Lord, and the Lord hearkened unto him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, because the king of Syria oppressed them. All of the buildup of the verses before verse 4 were necessary because we're going to learn a little bit more and hopefully appreciate a little bit more about the grace of God. What do we have so far in chapter 13? We have a wicked king who followed one of the wickedest kings who ever lived. And this wicked king has led an entire nation of people to do wickedly as well. And God has delivered this nation into the hands of a Gentile nation, an unclean people. And every bit of this was deserved. And now what happens? This wicked king who led his nation to sin has now besought the Lord. Those are the words in verse 4. Jehoah has besought the Lord. Now just notice that word, besought, that verb, 
And we'll study it just a little bit more in a moment. Now, what had Jehoahaz done in verse 2? In verse 2, it says he followed the sins of Jeroboam. So if you write or take notes, underscore that word followed. And then it says, and he departed not therefrom. So departed not, that's the negative of departed. There's another verb. He followed the sins of Jeroboam. He departed not therefrom. That is, he didn't quit following those sins. But now, Jehoahaz has besought the Lord. Now, what the text doesn't say here, and this is sad, and we'll see it in a few moments. What it doesn't say here is that Jehoahaz no longer followed the sins of Jeroboam. It just says he besought the Lord. Now, the Hebrew word for this verb, besought, is actually translated as the word sick more than it is any other word, sick. So imagine that, the word sick. Jehoahaz besought the Lord. He came to the Lord as one who was sick and weak before the Lord. He was helpless, wasn't he? God delivered Israel into the hands of a Gentile nation, put them under that Gentile nation. Here's a passage that will help you understand the word besought just a little bit more. And it's found in Exodus chapter 32, if you want to write that down, Exodus 32, and I'll read verses 10 and 11. And in this chapter, the children of Israel were being supervised by Aaron, Moses' brother, at the foot of Mount Sinai while Moses was in the mountain receiving the law from the Lord. And under Aaron's supervision, the children of Israel made a golden calf, worshipped it, danced around it, made quite a ruckus. And God was so angry that he was ready to destroy them. In verses 10 and 11, God said, Now therefore, he's talking to Moses, let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. And Moses besought the Lord his God. There's our word. Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand. What were the conditions under which Moses besought the Lord for Israel when they were at their absolute worst? He went to the Lord and he besought him. He represented to the Lord the sin sickness of God's chosen people. And he appealed to God on that basis. He said, Lord, he didn't deny that the children of Israel had done wrong. But God wanted to completely destroy them. And Moses said, 
Why does your wrath wax hot against these people who you brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? And although Israel deserved to be destroyed at that moment. Down in verse 14 it says, And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. So when Moses besought God, God turned his wrath away and saved his people from certain death. Now, we've studied this before, but when God repents, that word is also translated as eased or comforted. It doesn't mean that God suddenly changed his mind. That's just how it appears to man. You see, we don't understand foreknowledge, do we? Our weather men sure don't understand foreknowledge. They can't decide if it's going to rain or snow or do nothing two days from now. And that's okay. God already knew from the foundation of the earth whether it would rain or snow or do whatever it's going to do on Tuesday. But to man, when God says, let me alone, I'm going to destroy this people, and Moses beseeches the Lord, that's the present tense of besought, and then God turns from it, it looks like God repented to us. But God knows ahead of time what he will do and what he won't do, and that never changes. We're the ones who don't know what God will do or what he won't do or when he will do it if he does do it, unless his word clearly spells it out for us. Somebody's got it on playback, and I appreciate you wanting me to be repeated. But yeah, uh, How gracious... And merciful was God to hearken, to listen to Jehoahaz when he besought the Lord. And let me tell you, Jehoahaz was no Moses. He, he wasn't even in the same class as Moses. He had been serving false gods, Jehoahaz. He had been leading the people to serve false gods. Moses, on the other hand, was on Mount Sinai. He was one-on-one -on -one with God, and he was receiving the law that he might transmit it to the people. It was Aaron at the bottom of the mountain who led the people to do wickedly. And you know, the grace of God was amazing enough in that he spared the children of Israel in Moses' day. But how amazing is that grace that he would listen to one as wicked as Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz, as the king, was interceding. He was going between. He was a go-between on behalf of Israel. But I think most likely he was beseeching God for his own hide as well. Probably more so than for the people. And God, on the other hand, saw the oppression of Israel. He saw Israel's oppression, not Jehoahaz's plight. Jehoahaz was just part of Israel. I think Jehoahaz was concerned about himself, and God was concerned about Israel. And he saw their oppression. And not only was Israel oppressed, they were oppressed by Gentiles. The Syrians, this Gentile nation, and their kings should have been greatly afraid of messing with God's chosen nation. They should have said, I'm not laying a hand on that nation. I don't want to come against the apple of God's eye. 
But, as is the case in these verses, both Hazael and Ben-Hadad and their armies were glad to go against the children of Israel. And God, who had restrained Syria before now, they'd always wanted to conquer Israel. But God, who had restrained them before now, simply delivered his people into their hands because of the sin of his people. And however, just as he is now, so was the Lord then. In all of their wickedness, he was still ready to hear the cries of repentance from his people. He always is. So that one who says, no, Andy, I've gone too far. You don't, you don't understand. He stands ready to hear your cry of repentance. Now, one day that door will shut. But that door hasn't shut. So that one day hasn't come yet. And to Solomon, listen to the words God said to him. They're found in Second Chronicles chapter 7. Verses 13 through 15. 2 Chronicles 7, verses 13 through 15. And I want you to see the similarity of what happened in Solomon's day, or what God said in these verses, and what happened in Jehoahaz's day. God said, If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now mine eyes shall be open and my ears a tent unto the prayer that is made in this place. What did God say? When I judge this nation, when I judge my own nation, bringing them drought and all of that, if they'll humble themselves, turn from their wicked ways, pray, I'll hear it. I'll hear them. I won't say, no, no, I, you've gone too far now. I'm not going to hear your cries. And this principle is found throughout God's word especially in the Old Testament passages about Israel and Judah sinning and sinning and sinning. In the Second Chronicles verse I just read you, God said his ears would be open to the prayer of his people even after he brought drought and pestilence and locusts. And right now his grace is what Israel and Judah and we need. Look at verse 5 in your text, 2 Kings 13, verse 5. And the Lord gave Israel a Savior, so that they went out from under the hand of the Syrians, and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before time. The word Savior here is a helper or a deliverer. And in the Old Testament, it's more often used to refer to a physical deliverance from an enemy, whether that enemy is a nation or a group of people or some other earthly force, even the mouth of the lion, the paw of the bear. 
But from these earthly examples of salvation, of deliverance, God teaches us about spiritual salvation. Just like he used the temple to teach us about salvation, using earthly deliverance from an earthly enemy is what God also uses to teach us about salvation. Now, sin is our greatest enemy. It's what separates God from mankind, mankind from God. And its consequence is that God justly brings his wrath upon all mankind. That's the just consequence of our sin, is that God would pour out his wrath on all mankind, just like he told Moses he was wanting to do there at the foot of Mount Sinai. Step back, I'm going to destroy them all, I'll make a a nation out of you. Now Israel needed to be saved from her enemies, in this case, the Syrians, so she could live and not die. And sinners need to be saved from the wrath of God, which is poured out upon them, just like the Syrian army was poured out upon Israel. And as God sent a deliverer to save Israel from the Syrians, he says he sent a Savior. He gave them a Savior. As God sent this deliverer to save Israel from the Syrians, he sent one to save us from our sin. Jesus, who shed his righteous blood for unrighteous sinners. God didn't have to do that. He could have said no. I gave mankind a rule in the garden, and he broke it. And ever since then, he's just done worse and worse. He's toast. He's not going to be saved. But in Romans chapter 5 and verse 9, Romans 5, 9, the apostle Paul wrote, Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved. From wrath through him. And look back in your text in verse 5. Excuse me, verse 6. Well, let's, let's look at verse 5 just a moment more. Look at the phrase, so that they went out from under the hand of the Syrians. We're going to connect that with the phrase, and the Lord gave Israel a Savior. He gave them a Savior, and it says, so that they went out from under the hand of the Syrians. This is so important. So that they went out. Hey, that's the result of the saving right there. Israel was under Syria. And now they have been brought out from under Syria. They were under the hand of the Syrians. That means they were subject to Syria. Syria told them what to do. Now what happened to Adam and Eve when they sinned in the garden? They had been under God's protection and authority. They'd been subject to him. And in that position, nothing and no one could hurt them, not even sin. But they chose to come out from under God's authority. 
by obeying another authority. That was the serpent, the devil. They turned away from God, who had protected them from the enemies of corruption and death. You know, as long as Adam and Eve were without sin in that garden, there was no corruption, there was no death. And so they turned away from God, who had protected them from those enemies. And they placed themselves themselves under one who neither protected them from corruption or death, but in fact, he desired their corruption and their death. Satan was done for. He had already fallen from heaven, and his end was sure. He would be destroyed in the lake of fire along with the angels who followed him. That was a done deal. But at that time, mankind had not yet fallen. So you had a fallen creature, Satan, who was Lucifer, and he tempted Adam and Eve. And in so many words, he says, hey, you're under God's authority. Why don't you come under my authority? Life is better over here. And instead of them saying, nope, not going to happen. Not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We want to stay under God's authority and be therefore under God's protection. But they made that choice. And they went from life to death. Now Adam and Eve were under sin, and so have their descendants been, you and me as well. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 9, Romans chapter 3 and verse 9, this word under is so important here because we're connecting it to how Israel was under Syria. Romans 3, 9, the apostle Paul wrote, what then are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin, under sin. Now, what are the wages of sin? It's death. According to Romans chapter 6, verse 23, and many other scriptures as well. So mankind went from being under God and under his protection from sin and death to being under Satan and corruption and death. We've sold ourselves to corruption, to death. So even in the Pledge of Allegiance, where many, many people are hypocrites and say, one nation under God, hold on a minute, are you really under God? Or is that just a big old fat lie like a lot of the rest of the songs and pledges and prayers that people make? I'm under God because I'm in Christ. But I can't say that my whole nation is. I wish we were. Perhaps there was a time when we were more so under God, probably in our founding years. But that's for God to parse and to judge. When God saved Israel from Syria, there was a change of authority. They'd been under Syria, just like we'd been under sin. And ideally, Israel should always have submitted to God's authority. 
and that would have guaranteed their protection. When God saved me from my spiritual Syria, the wages of sin, there was also a change of authority. Now, God's always been God. He's always been in charge. But when I was saved, I recognized and claimed him as my God by believing in the record that he gave of his son and what he did for my sin. So I went from under the authority of Satan, the father of lies, to being under the authority of God, the rightful authority of God, through his son. Because I couldn't have done that myself. I couldn't have said, you know what, Satan, I'm going to another king and just start living right. That wouldn't work. I've got so much sin built up. How would I, what would I do about it? God would say, no, you can't have you. You're defiled. But if you come through my son, I will accept you. So that's what happened. Now, just, just a, this is not a side note. This is further amplification here. We're talking about being under the Syrians, under sin. And you, meaning somebody in here or somebody who's watching or somebody who will watch, there are some who worry and fret about their salvation. They really do. And it's real to them. It's, don't look at them and say, huh, how could you worry or fret about losing your salvation? They do. People do. That's what the, the website is built upon is the need that people have. And I'm sorry to say, but most of them are from independent fundamental Baptist backgrounds. The need they have to know the truth about the gospel and the fears that they have of being saved and then not being saved and being saved again and not being saved again, they don't understand it. So to people who worry or fret, or maybe you know somebody who is in that situation, I want you to hear this and let it comfort you and assure you. It does me. If you've placed your faith in the salvation that Jesus accomplished for you at the cross, then you're under the protection of God from his own wrath against unbelievers. You're under that protection. And if you're under God's protection... What that means is he refuses to pour his wrath out upon you. Did you ever think of that? He refuses. He's not going to do it. Paul comforted the Thessalonian church with these words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 9. Speaking to the church now, these are believers. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. So not only will God refuse to pour out his wrath upon his people, the Christian. He won't even let you make an appointment for it. If you, if you say, well, I'm doubting my salvation, I guess I have an appointment for wrath now. No, nope, you can't get on the books because you're saved, because you're under him. There are at least two appointments that you will keep. 
One of them is in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 through 28. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 through 28. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So the first appointment you will keep is death. Even if you're alive during the rapture, your body is going to die. That defiled body that you're walking around in is not going to go to meet the Lord in the air. It's going to be changed. So in, in essence, it's going to die. But most of us will see that physical death, the wages of sin. The second appointment you will keep is, if you're a Christian, is the obtaining of salvation. The obtaining of salvation, where the word obtain doesn't mean, okay, that you may get it someday. No, you already have it. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to those who've already believed. Obtain is translated also as the word purchased possession. That is past tense. Purchased possession, which is found in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. I'm trying to show you that once in Jesus Christ... You are under God's authority through his son. You can't go back to the Syrians. Ephesians 1, 12 through 14, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. There you go, you, who trusted in Christ. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also after that ye believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. There's the word obtain. Under the praise of his glory. Now, Christian, if you know you're going to die, you know you're going to keep that appointment. Mary kept the appointment. Billy kept the appointment. And all the brothers and sisters that have been in this church and who've gone on to be with the Lord, they kept that death appointment. They didn't know when it was going to be, but God did. But if you know you're going to die, then just as certain as your death is your obtaining of salvation. That's a purchased possession. Where was it purchased? At the cross. Jesus said, it is finished. Tetelestai, Greek word, means that that debt is paid. God saved you. He sealed you with his spirit, like Paul told the Ephesians. And he refuses to pour out his wrath on those whom he saved through his son, those who are under him. How then can you make the argument that God would take your salvation away from you? It's not possible. Because of his own faithfulness. And this, my friend, is the difference. And it is a vast difference. Between God delivering Israel from her earthly enemies, which he would have to do over and over and over again because of corruption, and our deliverance by the blood of his dear son. Why do you think the Old Testament saints, the priests, the children of Israel had to continually offer those blood sacrifices over and over and over again? Because these were sinners offering sacrifices on behalf of sinners 
to a holy God. And the Bible said the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. So when God delivered his people, the children of Israel, who were a bunch of sinners, from the ravages of war, from the dominion the Syrians had over them, the Syrians were a bunch of sinners. He delivered sinners from sinners so sinners could not be ruled by these sinners. And then once again, they would sin and go back to being ruled by other sinners to whom God would deliver them. What a mess. And all of those sacrifices that had to be offered over and over and over again were because of the corruption of sin, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. But Jesus put an end to all of that because he has a kingdom. And of his kingdom, there shall be no end. There won't be a change of authority. It's his. It always has been. And it always will be. And it is now. You're in the kingdom. You're under the king of the kingdom. You can't be ruled by the Syrians again, not spiritually. Now look back in the text there in verse 5. The Lord gave Israel a Savior so that they went out from under the hand of the Syrians. And the third part, and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before time. They're back home. They're back where they should be. They had once dwelt in a place of protection, their tents. And being in a tent under God's protection was no different than being in a brick building under God's protection. It wasn't the building, it was the God who protected them. What did they need in order to return to their tents? They needed salvation from their enemies. That's what they needed. They were under their enemies and now they're in their tents. The Garden of Eden was such a place of protection from all things that were evil, from Satan's kingdom. And sin caused Adam and Eve to be removed from that garden, and they never went back. They couldn't. The garden would never be the same on earth. It had been defiled by sin. That's why God put those cherubims with swords every which way to protect the way of the tree of life. And people since then have looked for it, just like they've tried to find the ark on Mount Ararat and all the other things for whatever their reasons were. We don't need to find those things to verify the Bible, but when they are found, it does edify us. And that garden was certainly altered by the flood in Noah's day, but they would never find it. And if you study Revelation chapter 22, well, all of Revelation, but chapter 22, you'll see that the tree of life is no longer on the earth in a garden available for somebody to find. But it's in the presence of the Lord. A place where sin cannot enter. It's protected. And just as Israel had a way back to their tents through a Savior... There is a way for man to return to the presence of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God, according to Revelation 2, verse 7. Both Israel and man 
need a savior. Israel to return to her tents, physically, earthly, spiritually, for mankind to return to where the tree of life is. And we who are saved will, we will one day eat of that tree of life. Look at verse 6. Now, boy, if you just stopped at verse 5, you'd say, man, was God gracious to these people. And look what their response is in verse 6. This brings us back down to earth again, doesn't it? Sadly. Nevertheless, they departed not from the sins of the house of Jeroboam who made Israel sin, but walked therein, and there remained the grove also in Samaria. Nevertheless, they departed not from the sins of Jeroboam. This describes the wishy-washy sinful nature of man, of the flesh. It describes the selfishness of man. God's anger had been kindled against Israel because of her sin. So he delivered them into the hand of the Syrians. And you would think, well, all right. When God delivered them out of the hand of the Syrians, the Israelites would see not only the earthly application, but the spiritual application to this. What's God teaching us? He delivered us from our enemies when we did not deserve it. We deserved to be ruled by our enemies until we died, but we weren't. God brought us back. What is God teaching us? No, nope, they didn't do that. They thought, oh, good, that was a close one. Let's go back to the church of the golden calf. Now that everything's safe and secure, the threat of eternal damnation was a byword. It was just a silly notion to most of them, just like it is to most people today. In fact, I believe if you ask most religious people in the world, do you think that your sin would send you to hell? Most of them would say, oh, I've never killed anybody. I've never done anything that bad. No. That's what they'd say. That's way in the future. We don't have to deal with that right now. But to them and to people now, the prospect of immediate capture, immediate loss of property, slavery, physical death, that was real. That could happen right now. It was pressing. And Israel and her king were afraid. God sent a Savior and delivered them. They went right back to the way they were before. Now, when does sinful man usually call on the Lord? When things are a hot mess. Isn't that right? When a serious illness has overtaken us, or when we've lost our earthly possessions in a fire, storm, that's when many decide to beseech the Lord, as Joah has besought the Lord. And in his grace and mercy, which is above our understanding, even in those circumstances, sometimes God delivers. But the thankless people do just what Israel did, just what the nine lepers did when Jesus healed them. They depart not from their sins. They, they go away. The storm is over. They just put everything on the back burner till the storm passes by when they cry, Lord, save us, save me. But they don't really know what salvation is. They're hung up on the near, the tangible, the, the right now, not the more needful. 
the salvation from their sin. Here's a passage that demonstrates this perfectly, but it does have a very happy end. Paul and Silas, and I suppose other of the disciples and apostles, but they are named here in Acts 16, they had been beaten, imprisoned for preaching the gospel, no less, and a certain jailer had charge of them. And as they were in the prison, the apostles sang praises to the Lord. And listen to what verses 26 through 31 say. And I want you to focus on what this jailer said. Acts 16, verses 26 through 31. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands, their handcuffs, were loose. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas. Now this is what Jehovah has did with the Lord. Before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. Now when this jailer asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He was asking what he might do to escape the death sentence that would be upon him for these prisoners breaking out of their cells. That's why he was about to kill himself. That was a real and pressing danger for him, just like the Syrians were for Jehoahaz and the children of Israel. And he was scared, just as Jehoahaz was. And the answer the apostles gave him was not given to save this jailer from earthly death, but to save him from eternal death. He asked an earthly question, what must I do to be saved? And they gave him a spiritual answer. Every time God delivered Israel from her enemies, he was teaching them about this salvation that the apostles briefly explained to this jailer. God not only saved this jailer from spiritual death, if you read further in the text, but the rest of the passage tells us he saved him, or it shows us that he saved him from an earthly death because this jailer got to go home after his shift. And he took the apostles with him. And he washed their stripes. They'd been beaten with many stripes. He watched his own family believe the gospel and was baptized along with them. So unlike Jehoahaz, this jailer said, I know what you mean. I asked what must I do to be saved from being executed for letting the prisoners go. And you showed me what I need to do to be saved from eternal death. And so by God's grace... He saved him from eternal death, but he also saved him from the immediate spirit, physical death. Now, this jailer died one day. We don't know when, but he died sometime after this because he was a sinner. But his spiritual man did not die. And with that, we'll stop and come back next week and finish out verse 6. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your truth. Thank you for what the words have shown us today. And I pray that we would meditate upon them. 
apply them, help others to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ better. And Lord, you know what our needs are today. And as we go into the next hour, I pray that, Lord, the Spirit of God would rule in our midst and that we would keep our eyes, our ears attentive to your word. That the singing would please you, the praying, the fellowship, and the preaching of your word as you empower our pastor to do so. In all this, we wish to glorify you and your son, Jesus. It's in his name we